in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. Three brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Hello, all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host, Chad Robinson. Chad, how are you, sir? I'm doing well. It's great to be back. Had a successful eye surgery, and I can watch movies again. All right, all right. And uh, I'm under the weather myself, which is probably why I sound a few octaves lower. Uh, gravelly, sultry. Hit puberty. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All these yeah. things. Things are changing yeah. for me. <laughs> yeah. Peter <And>, Brady. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I'm excited, though, because we have a first-time guest on the show. Isn't that awesome? That's awesome. And joining us today from the great state of Mississippi is Taylor Clawson. Taylor, how are you doing? I'm good. Good to be on here. All right. So people want to know more about you, so we're going to let them in. Are you ready? Yes. So what is the last movie you saw? The last movie I saw was In the Tall Grass, which is a Netflix original. Okay, Stephen King, yeah. Stephen King and Joe Hill. I read the short story before I saw it, and so I was interested to see how they could turn a short story into an hour-and-a-half-long movie, but they did it, and they did it very well. Memorable creatures. Yes. So you've seen this one, Chad? I have, yeah. Thumbs up for you? Mostly, yeah. It. Uh, I like Gerald's game as far as Stephen King short stories being turned into movies more, but yeah, it, it was pretty good. Okay. And uh, Taylor, who is your favorite director? Big question, I know. Yeah, it's been a while since I've seen one of his movies, but I'm a big fan of Tim Burton, especially circa the 90s and the two, like early 2000s. Yes. <laughs> I, I I removed Planet of the Apes remake and um, the Willy Wonka remake, and, and then I also love Tim Burton. Alice in Wonderland? I actually okay with that. I had a All good right. time. All right. Yeah, that's a, pre- that's a pretty good, refreshing uh, remake of the Alice in Wonderland, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah. Again, there's only two blemishes that I would say, mm-hmm. but I mean, Big Fish is another really great one. Yes, and um, yeah, I mean, even later ones like Frank and Weenie, I'm I'm good with that. that oh is, yeah, Frank and Weenie's good. That's a lot of fun. So, yeah. so what is your first movie theater memory? I know this isn't the first movie I saw, but I distinctly remember seeing Jerry's Game, which is a Pixar short that came on before A Bug's Life in theaters and being one very confused about the plot line, but also just astounded by the computer animation. So it was a bug's life, but it was a bug's life, but I know I saw movies before that in theaters. That's okay. It's hard to sort that out. Have I ever asked you that one, Chad? What what my first? Yes. And I shamefully had to admit that I cried during the land before time because sharp tooth scared me. There's no shame. I still cry. It's it's sad. No, I cried Uh because I was afraid of the giant dinosaur. Oh, I thought you were saying that. Oh, oh. no, not that they died of extinction. Just giant (laughs) T-Rex. Okay. Thanks for revisiting that. Okay. 
Um, and what movie would you want to remake, Taylor, if you could remake any movie? I'm a big Harry Potter fan, so if they could redo the Harry Potter movies now that the series is finished and so they know what's important, that would be great. Would you do something differently or you just want to live it again? There's just a lot of plot points that were important but had to be cut out because they would have made one of the earlier movies too long, but then it became very important at the end. And so they had to very clumsily introduce it and make it seem important in 10 minutes rather than it having been brought up before. So you're going to go more faithful then? Yeah. Okay. I'm sure it would make a ton of money all over again. <laughs> yes, it would. Uh-huh. By the way, have you been watching the Fantastic Beasts series so far? I have. I saw the second one very recently. And? They're going off the deep end. Okay, so so this is too far for you. (laughs) They're trying to make it too complicated, and they're changing things that are in the established universe, and they're getting really crazy with the plot twists. This sounds like the Hobbit movies where we introduced a love triangle. Yes, yes, it's very similar. They're they're making up siblings that didn't exist, and now people have siblings that would be like 50 years younger than them. They're going off the rails. <laughs> That's actually a good comparison, I think. Yeah. 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 Today's movie is what, Chad? Oh, brother, where art thou? Oh, brother. Where art thou? Uh, this is from the year 2000. It's a Y2K movie. It grosses $1.936 million. It is uh, a December release, and so it straddles the year. So it makes another $1.6 million in 2001. This muddles its placing. So uh, it only places at 144th on the box office in Yikes. 2000. It's, it's, it's a technicality of based on when it was released. So it comes in behind Beyond the Mat and ahead of uh, Superstar with Molly Shannon. Ooh. Again, it's re- it re- in reality, <laughs> it's, it's higher. The number one movie from 2000 was How the Grinch Stole Christmas. IMDb gives it a 7.7. Their critics of Rotten Tomatoes are dead on equal with that at 77%. But the audience likes it a fair bit more at 89%. It gets some Academy Award love, too. Uh, it gets two Academy Award nominations, uh, Best Adapted Screenplay and Best Cinematography. And Golden Globes-wise, it's a winner for George Clooney, Best Actor in a Motion Picture, Musical, or Comedy, and nominated for Best Motion Picture, Musical, or Comedy, although it lost to Almost Famous, which is n- not quite a musical or a comedy, <laughs> I should note. Yeah. So that year in the Golden Globes has me scratching my head. And where are the soundtrack love on these, like, it did win a Grammy for Best Soundtrack. That's a good point. But where yeah. Oscars, come on. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. But it did, it did win a Grammy, so someone out there appreciated it. That's a good point. Uh, Taylor, obviously, mm-hmm. you've seen Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? What was your first time seeing it? What was it like coming back to it now? Give us your background on it. So the first time I saw it uh, was actually when it came out on VHS or DVD. So I was about 10 when it came out. And so most of the humor went over my head. And the only thing I remembered were A Man of Constant Sorrow and the scene where Pete gets turned into a toad. Everything else, gone. Um, And then when I was in college, it was my roommate's favorite video. And so we watched it. And that's when I really appreciated it for how funny it was. 
Okay, so by going away from it a long time, then coming back to it, you saw it on another level then? Yes. Okay. And so you said the humor came back to it. What was it like coming back to it today? I mean, I still love it. I quote this movie all the time. It's one of my absolute favorites. Um, So watching it again is just more stuff to appreciate. I did notice this time what Papio Daniel's first name is, which I had never noticed before. Yeah, Menelaus. Menelaus, based on King Menelaus from the Odyssey. Yep. Oh, nice touch there. I, uh, well, I, we're getting right into it. That one, I, I actually missed that one. And I've seen this a ton of times. So. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, no, I have too. And this was the first time when I heard them say that. I was like, oh, that's why he's named that. Now, Chad, had you seen Oh Brother, Where Art Thou before? I hadn't. This was actually one of the movies I, I had checked off and said, oh, yeah, I've seen it. Nope. Totally haven't. Oh, really? So first time watch, what was your take on it? Uh, not to get too spoilerly, spo- <laughs> too much into spoilers, but I had a really good time. That's awesome. So what did you think you were getting in for? Uh, the Coens are kind of hit and miss for me. I, I don't like No Country for Old Men. That's not a... I think that's kind of an unusual note for them. It is. Fair enough. That movie, yeah, that movie's very unsettling. So I was kind of wary. I didn't expect the comedy. I knew the soundtrack was very famous and, you know, folksy. So I was looking forward to that. Okay. I, like you, wasn't 100% sure what I was getting into. I saw this in theaters and it was just a sheer fact of there wasn't a lot in the theater at that time. And so nothing jumped right out to us. My mom read the reviews for Oh Brother Where Art Thou? And uh, the reviews were very flattering. And so I kind of went going like, oh, brother, where are those? Is this Shakespeare? Because I don't, I don't want to be part of that because I'm not a Shakespeare guy. I'm really not. Not being, to sound unintellectual. But being based on the Odyssey was not a selling point for you. That wasn't in the review necessarily. Huh. Yeah, I didn't know that either. Yeah, I didn't either. And I knew it was old timey stuff. And I was kind of going in a little skeptical. And then I realized as soon as we got in there, I was like, oh, the tone of this is different. We're on, we're on an adventure. And the tone of this is light. And it's it's funny. And um, I also was kind of cool on George Clooney before, but this changed my opinion on him as well. So I was really surprised by all this. And later on, I left thinking this was good, but I watched this several more times because this is one of my wife's favorites. And she loves this movie. And it's one of the ones that she quotes a lot. I feel like I get quotes from this that aren't necessarily the quotable lines. And they're like, come on, how do you not know that? I'm like, well, it's... I mean, I don't know every line in it, so. Um, but it was really fun to return to it now. It puts a huge smile on my wife's face every time I watch this. So. At this point, though, there's got to be a warning. There will be spoilers that lie ahead. As uh, Chad said, we're going to get spoiler <laughs> Thank you. We'll be back after these messages. This is John F. Kennedy, your 35th president of the United States. Here to talk to you about a matter of utmost importance in this pivotal time. My fellow Americans, ask not what your podcast can do for you, but what you can do for your podcast. We ask you to go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or the other sources of your podcast. Subscribe to the show, give them a five-star review, and comment on the show. I challenge the listeners to like Retro Movie Roundtable on Facebook and write the show at RetroMovieRoundtable at Yahoo.com. We ask the listeners to do this not because these things are hard, but because they are easy and they help grow the show and improve it. 
Let us not speak the Republican podcast or the Democratic podcast, but the Retro Movie Roundtable podcast. Thank you, America. And we're back. Last warning, there will be spoilers that lie ahead. So if you haven't seen Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? You're going to want to go check it out and then come back and listen to the rest of this. Taylor, for those of people who haven't seen Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? since 2000, why don't you give people a little refresher on what happens in it? Well, as the blind seer at the beginning of the film says, you shall see things wonderful to tell. A lot happens in this movie. Um, the film opens with a chain gang singing a folk song as they work. We then see three members of the chain gang have somehow escaped and are running across a nearby field. After unsuccessfully trying to get on a train, we are introduced to our escapees, Everett McGill, Pete Hogwallop, and Delmar O'Donnell. They are on their way to a treasure that Everett has told them about that is in the valley that will be flooded in four days. Uh, the men see a blind man driving a hand car down the road, and this man tells them that they will have many obstacles, that they will see many wonderful things, but that they will not see their treasure. They will also, and this is important, see a cow on the roof of Cotton Shed. The three men then go to Pete's cousin, who breaks their chains, gives them food and a place to sleep for the night. The three men sleep in Wash's barn that night. They're then confronted by the police because... Wash, Pete's cousin, has turned them in. Fire breaks out in the barn. Wash's son then steals his father's car and helps the three men escape from the burning barn. The men leave Wash's son on the side of the road and then hide in the woods to get some food, where they run into a church who is baptizing people in the river. Pete and Delmar decide that they should get baptized while they're there. Continuing down the road, the men pick up a young man on the side of the road named Tommy Johnson. Tommy claims that he was out at the crossroads they found him at so that he could sell his soul to the devil to learn to play the guitar and that he's now on his way to a radio station to sing for some money. Pete, Delmar, and Everett decide that they'll go with Tommy to the radio station where they sing The Man of Constant Sorrow under the alias of the Soggy Bottom Boys. While leaving the station, they run into Governor Menelaus Papio Daniel, who's in the midst of campaigning for re-election. The police find them again and... Tommy leaves to go out on his own, and the other three men are able to escape. The next day, Everett, Pete, and Delmar are hitchhiking when a man stops to ask them for directions. Rather than waiting on the side of the road, he asks them to get in the car with him, and the stranger turns out to be George Babyface Nelson, who's on his way to rob a bank in the city of Itabina. After robbing the bank, the men camp in the woods where George leaves them with all of the stolen money from the bank robbery. As the men journey across the state to find the treasure, the Soggy Bottom Boys become a hit across the state with copy of their, copies of their records flying off the shelves. After stealing a car, the men are seduced by three women who are singing and washing their laundry in a river. Upon waking, Delmar and Everett see that Pete is gone and all the remains of him is his clothes and a toad. Delmar thus concludes that the women were sirens and they turn Pete into a toad while Everett remains unconvinced. Everett and Delmar take the toad with them and go to a fine restaurant to have lunch with their money. From the one-eyed Big Dan Teague spots Everett flashing his money at the waitstaff and tells the men that he wants to introduce them to the Bible-selling business. Uh, in the same restaurant, we see Papio Daniel with his campaign managers, and we learn that his campaign is struggling be uh, because his opponent, Homer Stokes, is promoting himself as the reform candidate. After arranging to meet outside, Big Dan ambushes Delmar and Everett, steals their money, and kills Pete the Toad. We then discover that Pete was not, in fact, turned into a toad, but was captured by the police. 
Upon threat of hanging, Pete tells the police where Everett and Delmar are headed, and then he is sent back to the chain gang. Three girls are introduced, and this catches Everett's attention. These three girls are three of his daughters. He learns from them that his wife has told his daughters that he was killed and hit by a train, and that she's about to marry a man named Vernon Waldrop. He's bonafide. He's a suitor. Everett then finds his wife, Penny, more of his daughters, and Waldrop in the local Woolsworth. The two men start fighting, and then Everett is thrown out of the store. Everett then meets back up with Delmar at the movie theater, where their show is interrupted by a chain gang coming in to watch a movie. Pete is there and tries to warn the other two men not to go after the treasure. Everett and Delmar break Pete out of jail that night, and Pete tells them that he told the police the location of the treasure. Everett then confesses that he lied about the existence of the treasure so Delmar and Pete would break off the chain gang with him since the three of them were chained together. He goes on to tell them that he was actually in jail for practicing law without a license instead of for robbing an armored car, and that he really wanted to get out of jail so that he could stop his wife from getting married. Pete and Everett start fighting, but they have managed to find themselves in the meeting of the Ku Klux Klan, who have kidnapped Tommy and intend to kill him. Pete and Delmar disguise themselves as Klan members so they can rescue Tommy. During their rescue mission, we discovered that the leader of said KKK meeting is gubernatorial candidate Homer Stokes. Uh, and Big Day Antigue is also in attendance at this meeting. Our trio manages to save Tommy and break up the KKK meeting and make their way back to town, where they disguise themselves so that they can break into a Homer Stokes campaign rally where Penny is with her fiancé, who happens to be Stokes' campaign manager. We also see that Papio Daniel is on his way to this event to try to convince Waldrop to be his campaign manager instead. During this campaign event, the men start to perform Man of Constant Sorrow and discover that they have become famous overnight. However, upon recognizing the four men as the same man who broke up the KKK meeting, Homer Stokes stops the performance and attempts to defame the group. Stokes is then thrown out of his own campaign event by his contingency. Papio Daniel takes the opportunity placed before him and turns the event to his favor and pardons the soggy bottom boys. Penny then renounces her fiancé since he is no longer bona fide and his campaign is on the losing side and tells Everett that she will remarry him but that she wants to use her old wedding ring, which is in their house in the valley, that will be flooded tomorrow. While leaving the campaign event, the men also see George Nelson as he is being led by a mob to the electric chair, having been caught and arrested. Everett and his companions head to the valley to retrieve Penny's ring, but they are confronted by the sheriff who's been chasing them. Facing death, Everett begins to pray to God, asking for forgiveness for his prideful ways. Just in the nick of time, the valley is flooded and saves our heroes. While floating on various pieces of furniture, we see a cow standing on the roof of a cotton house and Tommy, who happens to be floating on the desk that holds Penny's ring. Everett returns the ring to Penny, and they plan to get remarried until Penny sees that the ring Everett has is not her wedding ring, but a family heirloom. She tells Everett that he'll need to go back to the lake and find her actual ring as the film ends showing our blind seer from the beginning driving his handcart down the railroad. Well done, well done. And so what we have here is a story of redemption in a way. The way I see it here is that Everett goes from being this selfish uh, man to valuing his friends and doing stuff for other people and actually genuinely wanting to get his family back, not just because it's his to have, but because he actually really actually wants them. And so there's a sweetness in the story that I somehow didn't necessarily appreciate the first time that I watched it, but I really enjoyed that going back through it. Chad, what do you say on that one? Yeah, as soon as I saw The Odyssey 
as an inspiration. Yeah, it's very loosely based on the Odyssey. I saw it as just this journey to get back home and all the trials mm-hmm. and tribulations that are thrown in his path to make it back to uh, Penny, Penelope, however you want to see her, Penelope and the, the Odyssey. So, Taylor, are you familiar with the Odyssey at all? I am. I actually have read several like retellings, and then I recently read the Odyssey itself. So where are some of the overlaps, or where could, do you see that the Coen brothers kind of take influence from the Odyssey in this? So this was something I found out was the Coen brothers never actually read the Odyssey. So this is based on other cultural references to and movies based on the Odyssey and not actually the Odyssey. So some of the big ones that jump out is Delmar calls the women that seduce them and supposedly turn Pete into a toad. He calls them sirens or sirenes. And then Big Dan is supposed to be a stand-in for the Cyclops that Odysseus has to defeat in order to get home, uh, since he only has one eye. The blind prophet is something that occurs a lot in Roman and Greek mythology, um, and there is a blind prophet in the Odyssey as well who tells Odysseus, like, this is what's going to happen to you, and... I work for no man. I have no name. No name. <laughs> you see, that yep. might be a problem with why you can't get a job because... Yeah. yeah. And there are some funny ones that kind of play on the Odyssey. So there's a part in the Odyssey where Odysseus's men land on an island that belongs to one of the sky gods or the sun gods, Helios, who has these special cows. And Odysseus's men eat these cows and then are killed by Helios that's uh, George Nelson shooting people's livestock as he drives by is supposed to be a loose reference hmm. to that. And then Penny is Penelope. They only say it, I think, once, but Everett's full name is Ulysses Everett McGill. And Ulysses is a romanization of Odysseus. And then Menelaus is one of the kings that Odysseus fights for in the Trojan War. So... Pappy O'Daniel being Menelaus O'Daniel. Yeah, it's and the whole structure of the long journey back is. Yeah, the journey and then the sheriff is a stand in for Poseidon, who's constantly trying to kill Odysseus just to spite him. So, yeah, but the journey itself is a big reference. So, it's interesting they also tie in historical figures into this. Yes. And uh, Chad, as as somebody who's a historian by education, uh, <laughs> um, uh, what, are some of the, what, what are some of the pieces of history that they've thrown into this? Threw in baby face. Um, that, that was a historical figure. Mm-hmm. The Sweep the Rascals campaign was an mm-hmm. actual campaign. There, I forget the gentleman's actual name, but he did carry a broom around with him, and that was part of his campaign trail. It's not just the 1930s mm-hmm. equivalent of Drain the Swamp. Did he have a little man? <laughs> that I don't know. We need to get ourselves a smaller little man. Yeah. No, we don't! Yeah, um, the, the Soggy Bottom Boys are uh, based on a historical band as well. Actually, a lot of the music is historical they even used a uh, an actual chain gangs recording in the opening chain gang song so that's authentic that came from a chain gang yeah yeah so it's interesting to see these two worlds collide and uh just very interesting on that and um i don't know if i'm stretching it too much but 
maybe one last one is uh, in the Odyssey, you have a battle between, correct me if I'm wrong, the, the Trojans and the... Um, Greeks. Greeks. Spart- uh-huh. Spartans. Greeks, yeah. yeah, okay. The Greeks, yeah. the Greeks and the um, Trojans. And in that, you've got a governatorial battle between yeah. the two different sides, whether it be Pavio Daniel mm-hmm. or whether it be... Um, yeah, Homer Stokes was definitely Stokes. King Priam. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and there's a couple of funny ones, like in the Odyssey, Odysseus has just one son. Yeah, Telemachus. And in, and instead in this, it's Everett has six daughters. And then instead of Penny having 20 suitors, she has one suitor, Vernon. 20 suitors. Wow. Yes, because yeah. they're they're living in her house and eating all of her food, and that's why they need to go. Yeah, he had to kill all of them. Yep. There was a... Stunning lack of shooting arrows through axe handles, though. Yeah. There was yeah. a near impaling of the Cyclops, though. He almost blinded the Cyclops with the there flags. There was. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, but no sheep riding. Like, they strapped themselves no. to the his livestock. Sheep. And... Yeah, well, they snuck. Well, in a way, they did sneak into the KKK clan by putting the cloaks on. So yeah. that's kind of going in disguise. Mm-hmm. But this was against Polyphemus, the Cyclops. Yeah, uh, I... It's not, a, it's not a one-to-one. No, it's not. But I appreciate no. their efforts. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, going back to the redemption, too, I think that this is an interesting story of Delmar and Pete get baptized, and they, they view themselves as uh, kind of wiping their slate clean and turning a new leaf. And it's interesting to see there's this all this, so the story of salvation within this as well. Yeah, ever, ever. It seems I'm the only one with no affiliation. Because yes. uh, Tommy had sold his soul to the devil. And... Oh, son, for that, you sold your only soul? <laughs> I figured I wasn't using it. So, yeah, this is, a, this is a great adventure. And it's a funny movie as well. Uh, Taylor, what are some of the things that, again, this, this kind of caught me off guard when I went to see it. What are some of the good moments that just kind of make you laugh? Oh, there's so many good lines and just back and forth in this movie. Just the way... Everett, George Clooney's character, talks in general, trying to be really slick and saying as much as possible, hoping that people aren't paying attention to everything that he's saying. And then just his interactions with Pete and Delmar are hilarious from when they catch Gopher and are eating Gopher in the middle of the forest to riding with George Nelson and Delmar says, friend, your folding money's coming on stow." Uh, there, yeah, there's just, and then Everett's daughters, when they're telling him about their soon to be stepfather, <laughs> I was not hit by a train. Best thing you did for them warpy gals was get hit by that train. <laughs> I, I, I had to admit like the Penelope character threw uh, him for such a loop when she's like, it's gotta be, it's gotta be the original ring. And, um, yep. I felt like she was giving him a very hard time there at the end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. She seems she seems fickle. I don't that's, know. That's Penelope's role in the Odyssey, though. She's the reason for the journey. Okay, so she's got to hitch her wagon to a winner, then. Yeah. Yeah, and in, yeah, and in the Odyssey, she has to be really clever because these men may come in and kill her son. So you know, she's had to be really clever being a woman in the 1930s with six children and a husband sent off to the to prison. Yes. And yeah. uh, what was it? He kept claiming, "I am the." Uh, I'm the paterfamilias. Yes. yes. Pater. Yep. Uh, an unexpected line from him. 
Yeah. <laughs> Chad, do you want to give us a cast rundown on the crew from Oh Brother Where Art Thou? I would love to. George Clooney, he plays Ulysses Everett McGill. He's the smooth-talking vagrant. I uh, might recognize him as the guy that almost killed the Bat- Batman franchise. Talked about that. <laughs> That a little bit earlier. Uh, John Turturro, he's Pete Hogwallop. Uh, he's one of the escapees with Everett. He actually represents mutiny. Uh, the sailors mutinied against Odysseus in the Odyssey. Uh, I always recognize him as Emilio from Mr. Deeds. Okay. <laughs> uh, Tim Blake Nelson, he plays Delmar O'Donnell. He's kind of the dim-witted escapee with Everett, and he represents foolishness as far as... Uh, he talked about, Taylor talked about Helios's Island. John Goodman, he plays Big Dan Teague, uh, the Cyclops of the Odyssey. Holly Hunter plays Penelope, which is Everett's estranged wife. Penny. Yeah, Penny, Penelope. Chris Thomas King is Tommy Johnson. He is a black musician who winds up re- representing Athena, uh, giving the tools to Ulysses uh, on his way. There's Charles Durning. He is Menelaus Papio Daniel, obviously. Menelaus, we know who he represents. Uh, Wayne Duvall, Homer Stokes, who is the KKK leader and politician. Uh, Ray McKinnon is Vernon Waldrip, and we talked about how he represents Penelope's suitors. Uh, Daniel Von Bargen is Sheriff Cooley, and... Uh, Taylor did mention he's essentially Poseidon in this role. He makes Odysseus's journey difficult. And the sea kind of comes at the end to like yes. wash him out. So yes. that's yes. kind of a connection as well, maybe. Mm-hmm. A little irony. Yeah, that's a great one. And um, so, Taylor, what do you think about the cast here? Like, let's start with George Clooney. Is he right for this role? Oh, my gosh. Yes, he's perfect for this role. <laughs> Uh, he, he has the, the good looks to go along with the charm that he needs to be in order to be Everett, to be the smooth talking guy who always tries to get his way. Yeah. Despite what he did to the Batman series, like what Chad was alluding to, there's something about his uh, role in this movie that makes him, you just can't not like him, even though he does Mm -hmm. things that aren't very nice, whether it be like stealing, uh, Pete's brother's watch or lying to everybody. It's one of those things that even though he's totally out for himself, you can't help but you, you kind of like him. He's so charming. <laughs> it is hard. Yes. And he makes me want to drink coffee. <laughs> Get some Dapper Dan uh, hair gel. Yeah. No, I'm not. I don't want fop. <laughs> Man, he was. He had some brand loyalty to that one. It's my understanding there is a Dapper Dan hair gel now as a result of this movie. Oh, good on them for capitalizing. Yeah. Yeah. So the Cohen brothers liked uh, Clooney so much from Out of Sight from 1998. I personally haven't seen that one. But uh, they came to him and they put the script in front of him. And without even really reading it, he just said, I'm in. Because he was a fan of the Coen's other movies. And he said, even in your least successful of films, I'm a fan of. And so just the Coen brothers' cachet brought Clooney in. Yeah, I like how he's, he said he sent the script off to his uncle, uh, who lives in Kentucky and obviously has a uh, southern type accent and had his uncle read it read the script and record it and send it to him but uh his uncle had removed all the profanities that Everett would say and (laughs) the Coens couldn't figure it out for a while 
It it took some run-throughs for Clooney and the Coens to get back on page for some of the profanity. See, that surprises me because Clooney is from Lexington. Like, you would think he would have grown up at least around some of it. I don't know at what point he moves out to Hollywood, but I wouldn't think you'd have to call your uncle up. It's nice to get reconnected with that accent and how things might be phrased. Well, and probably put him a little bit closer time-wise if it was his uncle, too. Yeah. When this was said. Possibly. Possibly. Uh, what do you think about his two companions, John Turturro and Tim Blake, Taylor? Oh, they're hilarious. Especially Tim Blake Nelson as Delmar. He is one of the funniest people in this movie. Oh, yeah. I, I agree. Tim Blake Nelson adds a lot of comedic relief to this. And John Turturro acts as a straight man. You know, yeah. he, he, he gets angry. Easy. I had two weeks left. Yeah, that was pretty funny. <laughs> I felt pretty bad for him at that yeah. point. Well, uh, again, I'm sorry. About that. <laughs> um, again, such a smooth talker. Even 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 at that point, you're just like, uh, cut, him a, cut him some slack. Yeah. Um, Tim Blake Nelson was uh, Joe Cohen's neighbor, apparently. And uh, Joel uh, Cohen really hadn't seen him act in anything, but uh, turned out to be the right man for the job, I'd say, so... He based his accent on relatives from rural Oklahoma. Okay. So, different part of the world, but it worked. It all seemed everybody's southern accent checked out by me, by by my standard. Yeah, I, I feel like I feel like Clooney is the only one who didn't really have much of a southern accent, but that may just be because Delmar's and Pete's were thicker in comparison. I think he was trying to portray himself as this intellectual man. And I think that he was trying to, you know, he kind of had this, like, I've set myself apart from everybody kind of thing. you got to go the full country phrase. He was putting on airs, Russell. Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, and so uh, Jim Caviezel was considered for the role of Pete. I, after seeing, uh, you know, John Turturro doing this, I can't imagine anybody else doing it. And uh, it was one of those funny things he said during casting. They really liked the fact that he had bad teeth. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, Totoro called this a hillbilly musical comedy adventure, which is a great way of putting it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so many colorful characters along the way, though. I, I guess I want to talk about John Goodman is so good at like you know this guy can't be trusted. Like there's this menacing face to him. Mm-hmm. He's so good in this. I just I'm a John Goodman fan, and he's just great in this. Even though you hate his character. I wish they'd change the name, though, because when I hear Big Dan I and see John Goodman, I'm like, oh, Dan Connor from Roseanne. Uh, yeah. Oh, that's a good point. It, it's too close. <laughs> I had Big that Dave connection. or something. I was able to separate the two, but I, I see that now. Yeah. So what do you think about the uh, writing? We talked about how that it's it's a takeoff of the Odyssey in a way, but it's interesting. Joel Cohen revealed that he was actually inspired by The Wizard of Oz and that uh, the, it had... Uh, three saps on the run kind of um, notion to it. And uh, he was saying that they were trying to get home and there's no place like home was even considered to be a tag for the movie. And so at the same time that we said, this is like the Odyssey, it's also like the Wizard of Oz. Taylor, did you see that in any of this? I can, I mean, I can totally see that. It's basically just the journey archetype. So uh, it's going to have a lot of, lot of similarities to lots of cultural stuff touchdowns so is delmar the man without a brain and he's the <laughs> scarecrow and everett is the man without a heart maybe yeah 
Miss the Tin Man, or is he Dorothy? They do pick up friends along the way, you know, as well, Mm -hmm. whether it be Babyface Nelson or Tommy or um, Pappy O'Daniel. I mean, like, like, so they're they're collecting friends, so to speak, as they go through this. Um, And then another interesting comparison. There's so many comparisons in this, but it's fun when you mix resources. But Joel Cohen said that there's a lot of Three Stooges in this as well. And that's the comedy that you see. Yeah. Uh, again, Pete's the straight man, for mm-hmm. sure. And you got, uh, you know, Tim Blake Nelson's the, uh, you know, lovable idiot. Pete is the worst whisperer ever. Don't seek the treasure. <laughs> we thought you was a toad. <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, so what do you think about the direction that Joel Cohen does here, Taylor? It's it's just really good. Like the the directing was excellent for this. Do you like his style? Like how he gets into the old sepia tones and the. uh... Yeah, that was really nice. I didn't realize this. They actually filmed this during the summer, so everything actually should have been really green and bright blue skies everywhere. Um, But they color corrected everything to make it feel more like the Great Depression and. I don't know, like they were in, you know, the poor state of Mississippi. Uh, I remember when I first saw it, I didn't quite realize it was set in Mississippi, and I thought it was more supposed to be out west, and it was supposed to be the Dust Bowl rather than the Mississippi Delta. Yeah, I was also surprised, perhaps going back and watching it in subsequent viewings, that I also think of Mississippi as being a much lusher, greener place. But somehow, in a way, that stylistic move takes you back to the time period. I think it has to do with our association of old photographs. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And everything was, it was dirty. It was grimy. Mm-hmm. Um, by, by the end, you have uh, uh, Homer Stokes mistaking the, yes. <laughs> the escapees. As, it's like, they're actually colored. <laughs> it had so much dirt on them. Dirt on them. Yeah. That was very funny. Um, and what's also funny is some of the extras, so they had a lot of extras in there. Some of the extras were actually African-American underneath the cloaks. And uh, the Coens even... Oh, yeah, I, know the Coens, I didn't know that. Yeah, the, the, Coens, the Coens even were like, this is kind of trippy, man. I, yeah. I actually, I was wondering because they had pretty good lockstep in there. I was like, is this a marching band? Like, did they go out and get a high school marching band to do the KKK thing? So it's about 350 extras and they were hired uh, for the clan scene. Um, most of them were mi- members of a military formation. Okay. And so yeah, okay. they're used to marching and, yeah. you know, moving together. So, um, but yeah, it's a diverse crowd underneath there. Isn't that, it, it reminds me of the Dave Chappelle sketch, oh, like yes. with the black Klansman leaders, like, <laughs> what? There's a black guy, where? Um, so, but he was blind the whole time and he didn't know he was black. Yeah, which was, yeah. yeah. I just, uh, that, that always cracks me up. So, Taylor, have you seen many of the other Coen Brothers movies by chance? Um, I've seen a couple others. I also really, really like Fargo. That's another one of my favorites. Um, I've seen No Country for Old Men. Um, that is probably one of the most dreadful movies that I've ever seen. Like, you just feel we were just waiting for the other shoe to drop. Um, and then. Ballad of Buster Scruggs is really good. 
really only the first one fe also features uh, Tim Blake Nelson, but it's a funny anthology, like a bunch of short films put together about the Old West. It's interesting. The, uh, the Coen brothers have a fair bit of variety to what they do. Like they, they, there's yeah. a, there's, they, they range from comedy, whether it be like, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, or Raising Arizona, um, to dark, which is like, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, or like Bridge of Spies. And, yeah. um, True you, Grit was not funny at all. Yeah, exactly. And there's other ones that, uh, whether it be, uh, Big Lebowski, that was, it was like, had a light mm -hmm. tone to it, but it's very complicated and it's a big adventure as well that I see could lead into this, which was the Big Lebowski was what he did just before they did just before this movie. And that complicated layering of all one thing leads to another leads to another. Um, but on the other hand, they're not always so complicated either. So it's an interesting group of people or pairing, I should say, between Joel and Ethan that makes me always kind of want to check them out. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, another fun one that the light tone of this one is Hail Caesar is another fun one. I haven't seen that one, but I'm a big yeah. fan of Burn After Reading. Yes. Yeah, has, Burn After Reading is really off the wall. That, that one's has, dark, too. That has one of yeah. my favorite endings of all time with J.K. Simmons. Oh, yeah. So what did we learn? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. Oh, yeah. So going back to what Taylor was saying, though, but the look here, this was interesting. Uh, as they mentioned that Mississippi was greener than Ireland, that the cinematographer, Roger Deakins, uh, worked... Uh, to favor a dry, dusty Delta look of the golden sunsets. And so in order to get that, they tried to tent the picture uh, manually, but it didn't work out. And so they ended up taking the whole film, grading it digitally on a computer. So they'd scanned negative films. So they actually shot in film and they scanned that in and then ran it through a 2K resolution where all the colors were digitally fine tuned. And they took out all the reds and the blues and the greens and like just leaving you with this very yellow tone and the process took several weeks to do and resulted in a digital master that was output on the film again and the kodak laser recorder to create a digital master and it was the first time that this had ever been done in hollywood so it's not a movie that you think of breaking ground for special effects but they did as far as the storytelling goes did you feel like it was tight did you want to expand on anything taylor did you feel like the cohen's told the story in the right way the storytelling was pretty tight you know every person that we meet ends up being important and coming back, you know, they meet Tommy and he runs off earlier in the film and you think that's it. And then they end up finding him again later, which they need him so that they can sing man of constant sorrow again. And you actually hear Pappy O'Daniel on the radio when they're at Pete's cousin's house. And then later you meet him. And then even later he becomes very important and gives them a pardon. So I love how he dismisses them. The uh, story seems pretty tight. <laughs> Yeah. I love how he dismisses them at first, but it's like, we don't have time for them. <laughs> but yeah. in the end, like he, they're the ones who bring his campaign back by uh, hopping up on stage with them. Yep. Chad, when is this movie set? 1937. So uh, 1937, what are some 1937 things we're seeing in this movie? Uh, the Great Depression. Well, yeah. <laughs> well yes. They got, they got this here depression on. I got to do for me and mine. Yeah. I like the railroad aspect of it in the beginning where they were trying to hop a railroad that seems like a very period thing to do running through the agricultural fields and stuff like that in the beginning um and then the old church notion of like you know singing this gospel music that was a powerful scene as these people were mm -hmm. just walking through the woods as well you know the old car you know that 
pulls into the barn and stuff like that, you do get a feel for the time in this one, I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, you've got the, the rise of the KKK as well and the memberships yeah. there uh, that came out of right around the 20s to the 30s. Okay. Yeah. I don't know why. Yeah, I, I hadn't thought about that one being part of the time, but yeah, that's, that's a good point. And then obviously the early recording. You know, yes. as you can just walk in and sing. If you sing good, they give you money. <laughs> uh, only uh, four of us can sign our names, but the other two of us will just have to put X's. <laughs> Taylor, did you you mentioned before that this didn't feel like the South to you the first time? Do you, does it feel more like it upon subsequent views, or did you still kind of get that Western feel off of it? It still feels a little Western, just because of the sepia tone, but. Having now, so most of this movie is set in the Mississippi Delta, which is the northwestern portion of the state. Having been to the Delta now, this movie is definitely set in the Delta. It looks like the Delta of Mississippi. Just lots of farmland and a whole lot of nothing from one city to the next. Now, Chad, this is probably one that you're going to be excited by. Ulysses Everett McGill's childhood home is shown at the end of the film. So this is the cabin. And uh, this cabin is based on the 1981 Evil Dead cabin. And uh, Joel Cohen was the assistant editor on that first film of his. So it's a little callback to that. And knowing that you're a big horror guy. Yes, I caught that. It was well appreciated. How close is that? Oh, they nailed it. I mean, it, it looks maybe a little smaller in scale. But yeah, they nailed the exterior. Oh, I figured that would make you happy when I read that. It did. So what are some of your favorite looks in terms of the clothes and the wardrobe of this movie? Uh, Taylor, do you want to go on from this one? Well, I love Everett with his hair. Um, Always putting pomade in it and him with his hairnets. And that's the one thing he has to get when they go to the store. I got a big kick out of Vernon Waltrip, the suitor. Yeah. Uh, like he looked yeah, like he was out of a barbershop. Yeah, with like, his hat. Kind of looked suit. straight out of yeah. Gangs of New York. I mean, thought like it too. I, I, I somehow that that took me off guard because I felt like I was going the other direction. I was thinking like he looked like a nerd from like a barbershop quartet, yeah. but then like he pulled out these old timey boxing moves and uh, yeah. So I didn't see that coming. Uh, Chad, any other fun wardrobe pieces for you? Yeah, I mean, even the little girls' dresses, just the mm-hmm. the Sunday best for the girls and things like that. All of that stuff really helped contribute to the period for me. And going back to Big Jan Teague, I like the fact that he looked like he was a man of wealth, but in reality, he's just putting on a show and he's deceiving people. And so uh, that was very fitting and perfect for him. So he was able to lure Everett in by sweet talking him, even though it's funny because Everett's normally the one who does the sweet talking and getting people to go along with what he wants to do. So it was kind of fun to see the schemer get schemed. One, oh, the other one I want to mention is uh, the eyeglasses on the sheriff. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Those were very sinister and off-putting. Yeah, yes. I, I might talk about that more in a little bit. Okay. All right, then I'll, I'll, I'll back off on that one. I was actually curious when Tommy mentioned that the devil was white as you and that he had empty eyes. That Was that the same character? But I saw no connection to go that direction necessarily. So. Well, uh, that, that was actually what I was going to talk about in a little bit. So we'll I'll ahead. talk about it now. Yeah, yeah. he actually did um, fit the description of Tommy Johnson's uh, description of the devil exactly. Because he said he's white, as white as you folks, with empty eyes to so the sunglasses and a big hollow voice. 
He likes to travel around with a mean old hound. And that's exactly what Sheriff yeah. Cooley traveled around with. But I don't mm-hmm. see the... This is the part of the, that didn't connect for me. Like, I saw no sign of him being the guy that Tommy would have talked to and or... Like, is he the devil? Just Yeah, like, he, he is the devil. And he... Uh, yeah, he's, fire he's a reflect- symbol of... Yeah. Well, that's confusing to me because isn't, like, Poseidon the god of the ocean versus the... Uh, like, Hades should be, like, the devil? He is, but Poseidon is the one who is set against Odysseus in the Odyssey, and he wants Odysseus to die for disrespecting him. They're also brothers. So. Okay. All right. I mean, it's not one-on-one. Yeah, one, that's yeah. true. Okay. Yeah, the sunglasses as the empty eyes, I thought, was a nice touch. Was there any sign of a pitchfork? Because, no. like, Poseidon's, like, notorious, like, you know, pitchfork, you know, beard. Trident. Sure. But I meant like we're I, we're in the depression. I'm saying like we, like there was no sign of a pitchfork for him. Like uh, like or like um. No, nah, he had a shotgun. So. No, okay. Special effects. We talked a little bit about the sepia tone on this, but the cows looked so real that the oh that the animal activists actually got upset with this when they they mistook the computer generated cows for real, and they demanded proof that this was uh, uh not you know, real cows. And so they showed them how it was done. And after seeing the demonstration, they changed the no animals were harmed during this to scenes that may appear to place an animal in jeopardy were simulated, which is a far less common message on movies. Yes. That reminds me of Cannibal Holocaust where they had to prove they actually didn't murder people. It was so shocking. Oh, man. The other one that uh, was a effects-driven thing was the flood, which I loved this. Uh, it was very stylistic. It was late in the movie, as uh, Taylor was alluding to, with the, the uh, cow on top of the barn. But uh, just the cans of fop. Or sorry, not fop. Not fop. Dapper Dan. Dapper Dan. Dapper Dan. Uh, floating around, the, ga- the glasses from the sheriff all washing away, and the music was beautiful at this part. This was a really nice transitional scene. Um, and that was all the special effects there as well. Even though it's an old-timey movie, any other special effects that you guys wanted to call attention to? As far as lighting, I thought they did an outstanding job of making the KKK seem just vibrant and pop at night with the fires, with the red flares on the uniforms, uh, with the burning cross. I mean, all of these are bad things, but it was a beautiful shot and a great job of lighting. There was something really sinister about that. Yeah. 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 and it does make you wonder, like, how much time did they put into their choreography? Like, right. I mean, as a hate, as a hate group, like, if you're thinking, yes. so, like, like, if you're hateful and you hate other people, like, how much time did you put into that dance? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, someone's got to learn to march and to the Grand Imperial Dragon and the Grand Cyclops and what, or Exalted Cyclops. We have Sorry. to hold back an entire race of people, but before we do, yeah. we have to manage this dance number. Yeah. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Dave, you're phasing on your steps. <laughs> just pick up your pick up your robe. I just still wasn't clear how uh, Big Dan was able to detect that they were there. Was it just the sound of their voices? Cause, yes. Okay. Yeah. I guess they were more distinct than I realized. Soundtrack. This is a great uh, aspect of this movie. Taylor, tell us about the soundtrack of Oh Brother Where Art Thou. Uh, so the majority of the soundtrack from O Brother Where Art Thou is, as they say, old-timey music. It's lots of folk songs from this era. You've got On the Highway that the girls sing at the end. Big Top, or yeah, 
Big Rock Candy Mountain plays at the beginning when the men are first escaping from prison. Man of Constant Sorrow, I think, is one of the only, like, new quote-unquote songs that's in the movie. It was released, I think, before the movie came out um, and then was put in the movie. And they dubbed a lot of famous country singers in for things like Man of Constant Sorrow and for some of the uh, campaign songs more towards the end of the film. It went a long way to give the character of the movie the place and the time, I thought. Oh, yeah. No, it, it definitely adds a lot to the setting. So often... I mean, we'll say that the soundtrack was just there or it was serviceable or, yeah, sure, it suited the mood. But this this is a big character for the movie. It's it's a big part of the texture. Yeah, I, I mean, Alison Krauss winds up contributing, Emmy Lou Harris, yeah. Patty Loveless. There were inspirations from African-American spirituals. There were Baptist songs. Uh, any good Baptist like me would say, I love I'll Fly Away being included in anything. So mm -hmm. all the Baptists are like, yep, that song, great. Yeah. Um, so by early 2001, it sold 5 million copies and it spawned a documentary film, three follow-up albums called Oh Sister and Oh Sister 2, uh, two concert tours, and it won Country Music Awards for Album of the Year and Single of the Year for Man of Constant Sorrow. It actually outperformed the movie. Yeah, I mean, it, it's really impressive that this uh, happened when it did. This is kind of... Uh, it happened on its own too. Like if you told me this happened later, like when Mumford and Sons and like the Lumineers and, you know, of Monsters and Men, like the folk alternative indie revival had happened later, I might actually even believe you then. But for 2000, this was not the state of country music. This was not the state of popular music. And it's really cool that this is something that happened at that point in time. Because I mean, 2000, you're in the middle of boy band craze still. Mm, that's an unfortunate point. It's true. Yeah. It's tearing up my heart when I'm with you. But deep inside. Our podcast listeners can't tell, but I am staring a hole through Russell. I'm just trying to make him stop talking. Everybody, rock your body. Right. <laughs> I just... Uh... Bye, 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 bye. I, there's going to be an assault on the podcast. I, I want it think. that way, Chad. <laughs> so... The, yeah, he, he's angry at me for bringing that up, but... I will hit you, baby, one more time. <laughs> um, Taylor, is there a musical moment that stands out for you, especially in this? Like, I mean, there's Man of Constant Sorrow. That's perfect. Yeah, that's the whole thing. It's probably the most famous song from the movie, and just them singing it at the beginning. I was heartbroken when I learned on rewatching that George Clooney could not actually sing... And that they had to dub that in. It was too good to be true because, like, it you was. know what George Clooney talks like, and when he opens his mouth, is like, "That's not him." Like, I, yeah. I, I, I had that right away. I was like, "So that, Dan Timoniski was the uh, guy who did that." But uh, hey, Clooney did uh, put the dance moves on. Uh, pretty, pretty sweet moves with his feet. He can't have it all. He can't look like that, sound like that, and then sing like that. No, just yeah. too much. No, we can keep in mind there's the Batman thing though. Yeah. Yeah, he needs some humility in his life. Yeah, so he, he's human. Bring up nips on Batman. Yeah, he's not Tom Brady level of like, what is it you don't do? I have to hate you for everything. <laughs> so, no, uh, uh, you know, he's he's another step down from Tom Brady. Because if Tom Brady played Batman, it would probably turn out great and you'd just still hate him again. <laughs> yep. I kind of um, want him to now, just to ruin that for you. I don't want that. I don't, uh -huh. I don't want that. Um, so, 
Uh, Tim Blake Nelson, though, actually does sing his uh, In the Jailhouse now. Yeah. He Yes, he did. Yeah. Uh, and um, somehow when they're lip syncing uh, in Man of Constance, it still seems like extra funny. I just I yeah. don't know why it puts a big smile on my face that, you know, you know that that's not Totoro, especially. And, but uh, I, I, I enjoy that. And uh, I don't know that we mentioned this. Tommy Johnson is based on a famed blues guitarist. Who, yes. Okay. Yes. And he accordingly yep. sold his soul to the devil as well. So, yeah. So another tie into an old legend of the time. Seems like a good stage thing to do now, you know? What, sell your soul to the devil? No, like, I mean, yeah, uh, yes, I'm saying, like, like, you had, like, the whole Marilyn Manson thing, like, you're, like, I'm, an, I'm part of the Antichrist or whatever, but, like, have you actually seen, like, a devil, like, like a theatrical person come out, like, and be like, I sold my soul to the devil, so now I'm really good at rock and roll. I feel like Ozzy Osbourne had to have done that at one point in his life. I don't know. It's a marketing opportunity. If you're in a band and you're looking for a thing, try that out. He calls himself the Prince of Darkness, surely. Or uh, maybe, I don't know. If you biked bats, I don't know that. <laughs> uh, Taylor, look for this. Are there any look for this moments that you want to call attention to? Uh, well, the first one, and I didn't know this, the name, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? I'd always wondered where it came from. It is based on the film Sullivan's Travels, in which the protagonist is a director who wants to make a film called Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Which is a book supposedly about the Great Depression. Wow, that's a deep cut. I never got... Yeah, you're right, actually. I almost judged this movie based on its title, and I never stopped to ask myself, why do they call it that? That's a really good find. Um, Chad, do you have any look for this moments? Uh, we talked about most of mine, but I, I think one of the fun things in the movie that makes you like the characters a little bit more is when they're stealing food from a window. <laughs> There's a, a pie or some, some pastry in the window. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's Delmar that runs back yes. and, and puts money <laughs> underneath the rock. The rock, yep. Yeah, because he got baptized. He's a new. He, yeah, he doesn't do bad anymore. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, I like the uh, so the historical babyface Nelson was a you know real gangster who was known for his hot temper and trigger finger, but uh, he was uh, shot to death by FBI agents in Barrington, Illinois, uh, in November '34, which is three years before the setting of this film. So that part wasn't exactly accurate, but. It's a, it's a fun part of the story to put in here. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Taylor, any other ones? Not that, well, so Papio Daniel is also based on a real person. Um, there was another Papio Daniel who's the governor of Texas um, who was also associated with the flower industry. Um, and I think he's one of several politicians who used the broom in his campaigns. Well, it's funny you should mention that. In the beginning when they hop on a train... I had to read this one. I did not find this one on my own. But when they hop on a train and, like, uh, George Clooney's asking them, are any of you boys Smitty's? And they're sitting on some sacks, and those are sacks of Papio Daniel flour. Oh, um, man. Yeah, yeah. so that's a that's a deep connection to what you just said. So I actually didn't connect it all until, until now. So, Chad, any other ones for you? No, I think we've covered, you know, the Evil Dead cabin, the original chain gang music, and uh, Sheriff Cooley is the devil. I got one last one, and there's a bust of Homer in the restaurant behind Papio Daniel. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't catch that. Oh. It's a little nod there as well in the, in the setting. So, It's my favorite time of the show. Taylor, are you ready to hand out some more words with us? I think so. Let's start with you. Who is your MVP of Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? I mean, George Clooney just makes this movie. I mean, he's the main character. He probably has most of the lines, and he's the whole reason that they're 
going to seek this treasure in the first place. It's my favorite George Clooney performance. I don't know about you. Where does this rank in your terms of your George Clooney performances? I'm trying to think of other George Clooney films I've seen, actually, but this is definitely at the top for me. I mean, he's yeah. just so funny and likable, even though he's not a, the best person in the world. I think his humor really shines through on this one. I mean, yes. so often he plays the cool guy. Yeah. And I, I like the fact that he's the cool guy, but I like that he's thrown into a situation where he's off put just enough to become indignant at times or to be frustrated. And that's a that's a humor mode that really works for him, I think. And yeah, it works well in the Oceans movies as well. It, to a lesser extent, but yes, also. Yeah, I would agree with that. Chad, MVP. I have to go with Clooney. Uh, I don't think this movie works if ever it isn't completely charming. And that's really Clooney's wheelhouse. Oh, that's that's a hundred percent true. I'm gonna go with Joel and Ethan Cohen. I just think this was a really cleverly devised concept to take the Wizard of Oz and the Odyssey and the this time period and put it all together. It's so unexpected, and that's so what the Cohen brothers are so good at. You don't expect a Fargo or a Big Lebowski or a or this, and so they once again have just done it where they've hit you with this quirky unique movie there's not many things like this no. so um kudos to joel and ethan cohen on this one um best supporting actor taylor i'm gonna go with tim blake nelson on this one he manages to play the dumb one of the trio so well and he has so many great lines that some of them if you're not paying attention you don't even appreciate <laughs> oh he is great he's great that you know what that that's mine as well he he adds so much comedic value throughout the whole movie right from the beginning too like when he's like well we're gonna put this to a vote i'm voting for yours truly i'm voting for yours truly too okay i'm with you fellers yeah his folksy mannerisms and just even his deductions of they loved him up and turned pete into a horny toad like he he had me convinced (laughs) i'm not entirely sure delmar that that is pete yeah He's I I love him. He he is absolutely lovable in this. So uh, is so that was a clean sweep for you too. Yep. All right. I just got to give him a quick nod then, since we all picked him. Uh, the guy who plays Papio Daniel is great. I love him bickering with his uh, staff. Yeah, oh with my Junior. gosh! If yeah. your mother would have seen, it's a good thing your mother gave her dad giving birth to you. If she'd have seen you now, she'd have died of shame. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I, I love his hot temper, and uh, he's just he's. That every scene that those guys are in, I actually probably could have put a little more of the him and uh, his uh, campaign managers and that. That they 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 did crack me up. <laughs> Taylor, who is your hidden gem? Uh, Mr. Lund, the radio station owner. He's in this movie for I think two scenes for maybe a total of three minutes screen time. He is so funny and also a very influential character in the movie, even though he's not on screen for most of it. Uh, that is Stephen Root, who's also Melvin from Office Space. Yes. Yeah. yes. And Milton in Dodgeball. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. And, and he's in Get Out. Yes, he is. He's got a great role in that movie. He, he lands some memorable smaller parts, really. Yeah. Chad, what are you? Who's your hidden gem? Uh, Ray McKinnon, who plays Vernon Waldrop. He does a great job of presenting himself as this dandy with these great manners. But then the 
the goofy old time boxing and actually being proficient. He, he had me laughing a lot with that character. That fighting style once again just really cracked me up of just like nobody fights that way. And you're right, it worked. And it's just like and like George Clooney is like looking at him in awestruck too. He's like, I can't believe he hit me. I'm gonna try and hit him again. Uh, that's a great choice. Uh, not to go back to be one note, but I'm gonna go with Brian Reddy. He's Pappy's. Uh, he's the younger, dark-haired man on Pappy's staff, and I I really enjoyed yeah. I really enjoyed their banter of, uh, you know, no, I'd say he kicked it real good. <laughs> it was more of a padlin. Uh, uh, if you thought about it, it might be more of a kicking. <laughs> more of a padlin. <laughs> I just that 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 paddling versus kicking exchange really in particular cracked me up. So. I'm going to go back with Brian Reddy on that one. Recast. Taylor, if you had to recast somebody and put somebody in their place, who would it be? The only one who I feel like could be replaced is the guy that plays Homer Stokes. He's just kind of there. Man, his voice is intense, though. Yeah. It is. He's he's really good at the, we will grasp the broom of reform. But I think he got cast yeah. partially for his uh, Klansman uh, role. Like, that. that's uh, yeah. that yeah. booming... Hateful, mm-hmm. hateful voice. You could go with Jeremy yeah. Irons, though, who played, who voiced Scar in The Lion King there. Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, Chad, yeah. if you had to recast somebody, who would it be and who are you putting in their place? Well, I feel bad because you praised him so much earlier, but I am recasting John Goodman. I, Whoa! I couldn't what? disassociate Big Dan with Dan Connor. I'm like, I, I don't like this, so I am putting Zach Galifianakis in this. <laughs> oh, man. I... I He's actually a small dude. Like he's not that tall. He's fat, but like I mean, he's not big. I I don't feel he'd just like be he chubby need, Dan. I don't feel like he needed to be that big, but just I feel like Zach Galifianakis could actually do mean and devious. Okay, all right. Well, so we're getting a slimy, double twisting, conniving Zach Galifianakis. Does he have the big beard? Yeah. Okay. All I'm right. Fine with this. All Doesn't right. have to, but. All right. Not on board. So my recast is going to go to Holly Hunter. She did it fine with the accent and everything like that. But I, I got to say, I had a hard time. It made me kind of say, why does he want her back so much? Because she's she's a little bit unpleasant. <laughs> and so I I think Sandra Bullock could do the stern, like, you know, you got to be you got to be a real man if you're going to, like, you know, be the father of this family. I think she could bring that sternness. We've seen it, like, in The Blind Side, for instance. But I also think that she could convey a little bit of warmth <laughs> in the role. So I'm going to go with Sandra Bullock in, in the role here for Penny. Was there anything redeeming about Penelope in the Odyssey, though? Like, uh, She does. So, you know, she's got all Odysseus is gone for 20 years. And so everyone just assumes he's dead. But rather than deciding to court these suitors, she tells them, well, I've got to make a... I've got to make a funeral shroud for my father-in-law because he's about to pass away and it would be a shame if he didn't have a beautiful funeral shroud. And so every day she goes and weaves one on her loom and then while all the suitors are asleep, she unweaves it so that she's never finished so that she can't get remarried. So she is holding out hope that Odysseus will return. Oh, Hmm. that would have been a nice little touch to have in this as well. Not immediately marrying the first bona fide suitor. He's bona fide. Yeah. I love I love those little girls who do that. I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> nah, I'm, I'm not your daddy. I just, they were great. 
Um, Just a great spot on the L and N. So, best shot of the movie, Taylor. Uh, I'm gonna go with what you said earlier. The flooding of the valley was very nicely done. That's a beautiful shot and yeah. very poetic too. Um, mm-hmm. it, you know, that's uh, in a in a movie that is very cleverly crafted. I think it's a beautifully crafted image. That uh, I don't. I'm not saying the rest of the movie doesn't live up to that, but that was a that was a really cool moment. Oh, and that's like the only time we get to see blue in the movie because even when Pete and Delmar get baptized, it's like brown, yeah. dirty Mississippi water. That's a really good point. That scene probably should have like a whiteness to it, I would think. But you're right. Um, Chad, what about you? Pete's interrogation for me. Uh, you see the lo- lightning going on behind Pete as the noose comes down. You see the officer with the flames in his glasses, and it's just very menacing and dark. Dark moment. Okay. My best shot is actually at the very early part of the movie. They hop a ride with a guy, uh, I believe this term is a gandy dancer on on the rail line. Uh, and so the old man pushing this like, yeah. you know, lever up and down, carrying them into town. And uh, it's the blind prophet. And as the shot finishes that scene, they look up and there's a beautiful one point perspective that alludes to there's a big journey that lies ahead. And there, it's going to take a long time to get there. And I just like that. It's very emblematic of the road that lies ahead in the movie. Seeing as I know nobody picked it, I wanted to call attention to the movie opens up on a black and white image and then it pans across the fields and then goes the chain gang and then turns into that sepia tone. Mm -hmm. At the end of the movie, it transitions back to black and white too at that bridge. Uh, A nice little open and close kind of like if you're a book fan, like a sense of cover to cover of the story. Best scene of the movie, Taylor. Soggy Bottom Boy scene when they first go to the radio station. That's when music goes from being just, you know, in the background like it is for most films to this is going to be a big element throughout the rest of the story. It adds a lot of energy, doesn't it? It really does. It does. That's a very powerful song sung very well. And that's when their fate starts to change because they get money from singing into singing into his can. <laughs> And I love throughout this, we didn't really talk about this, that there was this mysterious artist that nobody knew who they were and they wanted to get signed. Yes. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you're right. That was an interesting subplot. And they were so busy running from the law that they didn't know or certainly didn't have time to listen to the radio to know that they were a smash hit. What a fun mm-hmm. idea that would be. It'd be like putting something out on YouTube and not checking your YouTube feed and then, and then having millions and millions of hit. Mm-hmm. Like Chocolate Rain. <laughs> Um, uh, so Chad, uh, what is your best scene? The water nymph scene, uh, for reasons. Mm. No, <laughs> um, I actually enjoyed it because it's probably one of the closest allusions to the Odyssey as far as Calypso's mm-hmm. Island. So, and everything that spawns from that scene is just hilarious. So question, they turn Pete and... Wouldn't you rather carry the smallest man in the group who is Delmer? Yeah. Like, I mean, I get not picking up George Clooney, but I mean, I was sitting there kind of going like, why'd they get the, like, maybe, I don't know if he's taller or tallest, but I mean, like, they certainly didn't get the smallest guy to carry. Yeah, he was the biggest threat, maybe, so get him out of the way. If he's two weeks out also, I'm going to think he's got a lower uh, hit on his head, too. Like, you know, like, I would think that he'd have a lower reward. 
But it was nice because Odysseus's men did get turned into animals, and so in this yeah, case. they got turned into pigs and then killed. So, yeah. well, we thought he turned them into a toad. Yeah. Yeah. But it was a nice song, too, the Go to Sleep, You Little Baby. Yes, which is something that has come into my mind uh, more recently after watching <laughs> this movie when you're trying to get my little baby uh, boy to sleep. Uh, uh, yeah, it doesn't work. No. He goes to sleep. He, say, he sets the hours around here. He's Mr. Baby. Um, um, so for me, the best scene is similar to Taylor. I'm going to go when the Soggy Bottom Boys perform at the rally at the end of the movie when the crowd turns on Homer Stokes and as he condemns the Soggy Bottom Boys for ruining a special secret organization meeting, if you know what I'm saying. And then, you know, the crowd says, no, we like the Soggy Bottom Boys more than we like you. Yeah, what a fun twist yeah. when he's like, these people are colored and they're all like, boo, as booing yeah. him for hating someone that A, is white, but B, they're like, even if they were colored, boo and KKK. I was like, yay, 1930s. This probably didn't happen that way, but yay. I like as how, uh, as Homer's digging his hole that his campaign manager comes up and he's like, stop. Yeah. <laughs> and like, well, no, he actually comes up and says they're escaped criminals. Uh, and then because then he says i have it on good authority that they're escaped from the farm that's a good point okay sorry yeah so So um, he he makes it worse (laughs) and then papio daniel is such an opportunist yeah yes he just hops up and he's like i like these guys so the the soggy bottom boys swung the election and the gubernatorial race of uh for mississippi Mm -hmm. so that's my favorite one and uh i don't know watching a klansman uh like uh, fall on his face get and publicly shamed get yeah. publicly shamed is, it, it, it's rewarding I don't know it really is yeah <laughs> just, um, change one thing uh, Taylor oh I don't know I, I like this movie so much I don't know if there's really anything you could take out um, add another music number or somewhere yeah, yeah add another song to make it even better yeah Chad what about you change one thing when Odysseus returns home he's recognized by his dog Argus, I want Everett to have a dog that recognizes him because Penny doesn't at first. He's got the beard and everything. I wanted there to be a dog there that recognized him and he kind of has to shoo away. Oh, nice touch. Oh, but that's so sad because the dog immediately dies when he (laughs) sees Odysseus because he's like 22 year old dog. We can change that part, but I want him to kind of. That that part she said is sad. I'll change that part too, but I want him to kind of have to kick away a dog that recognizes him. Okay. My change one thing is going to be there are not a lot of women in this movie. And yeah. so, I mean, there's Penny. She's not that pleasant, as I said. Yeah. I think it would be interesting if on their excursion, though it's a long journey, that they encounter women other than the sirens who say who actually say nothing. They sing, but yeah. they don't say yeah. anything. So I think it would be interesting if while meeting Tommy and George Nelson and Big Dan, if if any of these characters might be female along the way. The women of the Odyssey, with the exception of Penny, are largely not nice. Circe is not nice. Calypso is not nice. I don't know. I mean, again, we're at the same time, we're in Mississippi. You can, I, I, I don't know, you can, it was a sausage fest. That's all I'm saying. Fair enough. Yeah, no, this movie is not passing the Bechtel test by any stretch. <laughs> so, um, best quote of the movie, Taylor. This is a probably more obscure quote when right before Pete and Delmar get baptized, they're in the woods eating gopher and Delmar offers one to George Clooney 
And he says no, because he thinks that they only have the one. And so he'd only get a third of a gopher. And the song is going on. So the first time you're watching it, you're listening to down to the river rather than what they're saying. And uh, Del Mar says, oh, no, you can have the whole thing. Pete and I found a whole gopher village. Yeah, there was there 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 were a nice uh, setup of a uh, three three repeating. Would you like a gopher? Before yeah, that. that's that's kind of a thing. Not to go down too far of a rabbit hole, but my my grandfather actually almost burned down his school attempting to smoke a gopher out of its hole. <laughs> it's not a rabbit hole; it's a gopher hole. Yes, oh yes. They set a bunch of dry leaves on fire, and yeah, bad oh things happen. Okay, uh, Chad, best quote for you. We got to find some sort of wizard to change him back. <laughs> like, just that conclusion from Delmar. Just, it makes so much sense, and it makes no sense simultaneously. That's a good one. And that's the kind of quote that, by the way, that Mary or uh, her sister would pull out. And I'd be like, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, you know, from Old Brother, Where Art Thou? And I'd be like, wait, what scene? So, uh, nice, nice deep cut there. I'm going to go with this scene where Pete realizes that Everett has stolen a watch, and he says, You miserable little snake, you stole from my Ken, who was fixing to betray us. I'm, I, <laughs> you didn't know that at the time, so I borrowed it until I did know. That don't make no sense. Pete, it's a fool to look for logic in the chambers of the human heart. There's just such good smooth talking yeah. <laughs> from a con man. There, there's, so, there's so much good back and forth in this movie. So it, uh, we've come to the end of the show. Uh, Taylor, is there anything that you want to uh, call attention to or you have a plug for? Like Tommy, who was on a few weeks ago, I also worked on the Mississippi Aquarium. So everyone should come to that when it opens next April. Congratulations. That looks like quite a cool project. I've seen some pictures. So definitely, if you're in the Biloxi area, go check it out. It's the big time of the show. On a five-star scale, half-star inter- intervals. Taylor, what would you rate this? Oh, this is a five-star movie. The writing is excellent. The way it's shot, the acting, it all comes together to make a fantastic film. It's a great pick. So this is the kind of thing you'll return to again and again and again. Oh, yeah. Chad, what about you? Yeah, this is a five-star movie for me as well. I A lot of this, even though it took place in Mississippi, I was born in a place called Pinch. My grandparents were farmers that came from Spencer and Elk River. A lot of the folksyism is very familiar to me. A lot of the music, it just, it takes me back to my childhood. And I just, I love a lot of what happened during this movie. Oh, that's a great, great, great. Uh, I'm going to go 4.5. I'm not quite there with you guys. Uh, I know for my fact, my wife, Mary, would definitely give this a five. And it's through her that my appreciation for this film has continued to grow. And probably will someday. I might join you guys in that five-star rating eventually. But when I first saw it, I might have just gone like, that was good. And 3.5'd it and walked away. But throughout the years, it it has very good rewatch value. And the soundtrack Mm -hmm. uh, is something that I have in my iTunes. And I think that's really one of those cool moments. Like whenever Man of Constant Sorrow comes on my shuffle... I do picture George Clooney stepping up to that can and singing it. So um, uh, there are powerful images on this one. And I think I appreciate it more. I never really studied the difference or the similarities in the Odyssey. 
and having coming back to it and studying it now, I think I like it a little bit more for that that clever weaving of the Wizard of Oz and the Three Stooges and doing all that. So yeah, I'm gonna go four point five for me. Fair enough. Chad, do you want to help me pick a movie for next time? I would love to. It's winter time, and it's cold, and it's time to do a winter movie. Are you ready for some winter? Winter has come. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Jon Snow. Option one, similar to the Game of Thrones, Jack Frost from 1998. Oh. <laughs> a man who can keep promises dies in a car accident. One year later, he returns as a snowman who has the final chance to put things right with his son before he is gone forever. Option two, Cool Runnings from 1993. When a Jamaican sprinter is disqualified from the Olympic Games, he enlists the help of a dishonored coach to start the first Jamaican bobsled team. Option three, Balto from 1995. An animated outcast husky risks his life with other sled dogs to prevent a deadly epidemic from ravaging Nome, Alaska. Cool runnings, man. All right. All right. Cool runnings it is. Apologies to all of our Jamaican listeners for how, <laughs> how terrible that was. No, that was great voice work. I, it, it, I'm limited with my voice work right now, so uh, thank you for doing all the voice work lifting for us in this yeah. episode. And thank you, Taylor, for joining us. We hope you had fun. Thanks for having me on here. Yeah, thank you so much. And to all the lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, we want to invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. Subscribe, rate, and review to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcast. Give us a like on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at, at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com if you want to talk more to us or if you want to be on the show. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Chad? I've got to go with Tennyson here. We are not... Now that strength which in old days moved earth and heaven, that which we are, we are, one equal temper of heroic hearts, made weak by time and fate, but strong in will, to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield.